We are in the Gospel of Mark series. Hopefully most of you know that, right? Because you've been at home going through the study guide that we've produced again to help you go through the series. I know a number of people this week have been saying how helpful that's been. So that's great. And we've been going through a preaching series, a number of different preachers who are on the back of that. And we've been looking at um, some excerpts, not the whole book, from the Gospel of Mark through the lens of discipleship. So as you can see, the series we've called Discipleship, the Call, the Commission and the Cost. And we've been looking at how Jesus dealt with, interacted with, treated his disciples, his followers, almost really looking at them as apprentices. We've been thinking like that and thinking about how Jesus taught them and how he prepared them. Uh, And that's been what we've been trying to do. And today we get to a slightly different point in the story, a different point in the gospel, which I'll explain in a minute. Before I do, I'm just going to pray. Lord, as we come to your word again today, my prayer is that you would enlarge our vision of Jesus. My prayer is that you would uh, show us just the deep, deep, profound truth of who Jesus is. That by your spirit, Lord, you would reveal to us new things that would open our eyes and expand our hearts and enable us to worship you. In a greater and greater way. Lord, we want to be, want to leave here. We've come as worshippers and we want to leave as worshippers with a new sense, an enlarged vision of who you are, our God. And as we look at Jesus in the Gospel of Mark this morning, I pray you would open our eyes and our hearts to have a greater vision of him. That we would make much of Jesus in our words and in our lives for your glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, so do you remember two weeks ago, last week of course we had a visiting speaker, Ben Lindsay, but the week before that Chris was up here speaking from Mark chapter 8. And do you remember we got to a key point in the story where Peter, one of Jesus' friends and disciples, declares the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says, who do people say I am and who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one who's been sent by God and it's a moment of revelation and we know from what the Bible says that Peter doesn't work that out for himself God shows it to him it's a revelation by God's spirit and so he sees something but you also may remember that Chris talked about the healing story that comes immediately before that in Mark chapter 8 where we see Jesus heal a blind man but in stages first of all he sees in a blurred way and then he finally sees correctly and again Peter's declaration of Christ as the Messiah or Jesus as the Messiah is is sort of a partial seeing they're getting some of it but they've not fully got it yet there's a parallel going on there do you remember that great point and 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 the challenge also that we always just see in part don't we and often we think we know the whole piece and we need to come humbly to God recognizing that we don't and then in chapter 9 today we're looking at something called the transfiguration And from this point in the gospel, there's a kind of a turn, a turning point where from this point onwards, we see Jesus's direction, his literal direction is towards Jerusalem. And he starts talking about his death a lot. You remember in chapter eight, he first talked about his death and Peter said, no, no, Lord, don't say that. And Jesus was very firm, wasn't he? What did he say? Get behind me, Satan. He said, "Uh, get behind me, accuser. He said to Peter, very firm. And from now on, he's talking about his impending death a lot. And he heads towards Jerusalem. So we're in chapter 9, if you like, at the hinge point of the gospel. It's a bit of a pivotal point. 
And you'll have heard of the um, transfiguration, probably, as a word. It's, it's a bit of a bit of a mouthful. And all it means is, it means a, a change. The, did you know the Bible's not written in English? So, so this bit of the Bible was written in Greek, and the word is metamorpho, so you know that, that metamorphosis, we get that word, it just means change, doesn't it? Something that changes. Jesus is supernaturally changed. That's what happens in the transfiguration in front of the disciples' eyes. And we're going to look at why and what that means. So we're reading from Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 2. The words should come up on the screen. And uh, it starts six days later. This is six days after what we've just read in chapter 8, which is Jesus starts predicting his death after Peter's declaration of the Messiah. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John and led them alone up a high mountain privately. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiantly white, more so than any launderer in the world could bleach them. Sounds like an advert, doesn't it? (laughs) Then Elijah appeared before them, along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Brackets, for they were afraid, and he didn't know what to say. (laughs) Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my one dear son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this statement to themselves, discussing what this rising from the dead meant. It's very easy, isn't it, to read backwards into the Bible. <laughs> we know everything that comes after. Just These guys had no idea what's about to happen, what, what's happening in Jerusalem in, in, in time. They've, they've really no idea. Jesus has started to predict his death. They have no inkling, really, of what is going on. And so he says, you don't tell anyone about this moment, this moment of transfiguration, until after my death and resurrection. They're going, what's that about? What, what's he even talking about? And uh, when, I, when I read this passage... <coughs> I thought, well, as always, what I try and do is read the Bible is think about what the people who first heard and read this would have thought. What are they understanding in this culture and in this context? And the first thing I think we have to remember is that they would have immediately seen in this occurrence like an echo of something that's happened once before. Uh, it involves a mountain and it involves the glory, in a cl- the glory of God in a cloud. And so immediately, I think they would have remembered Sinai. So Sinai is the name of a mountain. And uh, I'm just going to read quickly from Exodus 24. The words should come up. And it says this, The Lord said to Moses, remember Moses has appeared in our story. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I'll give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments that I've written, so that you may teach them. The Ten Commandments, you remember the story? God says, Come up the mountain, gives Moses the commandments. So... Moses set out with Joshua, his attendant, and Moses went up the mountain of God. He told the elders, wait for us in this place till we return. Here are Aaron and her with you. Whoever has any matters of dispute can approach them. So he's gone up the mountain. He's left some others in charge. Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord resided on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. Wow. On the seventh day, so Moses is up there in the cloud of glory for six days. On the seventh day, God called to Moses from within the clouds. 
And the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in plain view of the people. Moses went into the cloud when he went up the mountain and he was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And immediately, I think, you can see some similarities. So there's a mountain, obviously, and mountains in the Bible um, often are the site of encounters with God. They involve coming up to meet with God. We see a cloud, but not just any cloud. A cloud of the glory of God descends on this mountain in both stories. Of course, the cloud, there's one other place where immediately you think of the cloud, the glory of God in a cloud. In the story, in the Exodus story, when God leads his people through the desert, his, his presence is like a cloud for them to follow. Other similarities? Well, God himself speaks from the cloud. Just think, Peter, James and John, they were there. They heard the voice of God. How amazing. Like, properly, audibly, the voice of God coming out of the cloud. And the other, the other, um, there's another similarity which we find a bit later in Exodus 34 when Moses goes back up the mountain. It says, when he came down, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, when he came down from the mountain, Moses didn't know that the skin of his face shone while he talked. And when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to approach him. So again, we've got that radiant, shining a person who basically is, is glowing because of the glory of God. And the other, the other thing that it reminds me of is, you remember, the voice of God is audibly heard from the cloud. And there's another place in the gospel, in Mark's gospel and other gospels, where we hear the audible voice of God. And that's at the baptism of Jesus, isn't it? Where Jesus, the Son of God, comes to be baptised it's Trinity Sunday, as Tim's already said. And we often talk about the baptism moment of Jesus, of that, just the, the th- God in his threeness present, obviously. The, the Son comes to be baptized. God the Father speaks audibly, and the Spirit descends visibly. And at uh, that point in, the, in uh, Mark's Gospel, the Father addresses the Son, and he says, You're my dear Son, I'm pleased with you. And in this story, God addresses the disciples. Just think about that. God, the Father, says to, the, says to these guys on this mountain, this is my son. And what does he say? He says, listen to him. I want you to listen to him. And again, that brings us back to something else that Moses said way back in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Moses himself said, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet from among you like me. You must listen to him. All the way we're seeing, aren't we, what's coming out here. There's no no divide, I hope you know, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's no difference between the God who's present in the Exodus and the God who is present here on the Mount of Transfiguration. But as well as seeing some similarities, which are helpful and are really important, we've got to see a lot more than that. There's a lot more to see in this story. And one of the things that I've been reading is this idea that when Moses comes down the mountain, his face is shiny. And they're like, oh, you're really, you didn't even know it, but actually you're quite dazzling. And, uh, And when Jesus is transfigured on this mountain, it's interesting, Mark fixates on his clothes 
Whereas some of the other gospel writers also talk about his face shining, but also his clothes. There's like a whole, a much more complete... What does it say? His clothes were brighter than any launderer could bleach them. Which is a bit of a weird sentence, isn't it? In the middle, I find it a bit of a funny sentence. Sounds like an advert for washing powder. But there's something total about the glory emanating from Jesus. And I think it's this, you know, Moses experiences the glory of God and and he's changed. His face looks different, but Jesus emanates the glory of God. It comes from him in this moment and it's like as soon as Peter says under the revelation of God you're the Messiah it's like God just says okay I just pull, I'm just going to pull back the curtain a little bit and show you a bit of what that means and we've been reading in um, Mark's gospel a lot about Jesus the man you know and the way he interacts with people and the way he teaches and the way he um, deals with people And it's almost as if, as Peter gets this revelation, God says, okay, I'm going to show you a little bit of this now. I'm going to show you a little bit of what that means. And he just pulls the curtain back a little bit, and we have this moment of glory. And I still don't think the disciples necessarily understood who he was. Because Messiah, you know, Messiah means anointed one or chosen one. And it's a word which in the Old Testament is used a lot about other people. So, you know, a person chosen for a moment. So, classic example would be King David. In the Old Testament, a great king of Israel. He, would have, he was called Messiah. He's the anointed man of God for the moment. And of course, what we've got here is so much more. This is the anointed man of God, not just for a moment, but for all eternity. And the other thing we see on the mountain, and I can't really ignore this because it would be remiss of me to do so, is there are two dead men talking to Jesus. <laughs> Again, right? Well, you... Well, actually, Elijah didn't die, did he? He was whisked up to heaven, whatever that means. Moses died, and God buried him. I think it says in Deuteronomy, doesn't it? Which is also amazing. But but Moses and Elijah appear. Question, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Never seen a photo? (laughs) Did Jesus introduce them? I have no idea. But anyway, they're there. We know they're Moses and Elijah. What the dickens are they doing there? Uh, these guys have been dead, not around on planet Earth for a very, very long time, and there they are. And, uh, and I think what's going on here, probably, and commentators think, is that Moses is there because Moses was the one who received the law from God and wrote it down. Moses is there, he represents the law of the Hebrew Bible. Elijah is a prophet, he's there, he represents the prophets, and if you hear... Um, Jews talk about the scriptures, they often refer to them as the law and the prophets, don't they? So that's the, the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that these guys had, is represented here in these two amazing heroes of faith. Moses and Elijah, they're there on the mountain, they're talking to Jesus. But the key thing is, of course, that then they look up and they're gone. They're gone. They've come and gone, Moses and Elijah, but Jesus is here. Jesus remains. And what Mark is showing here in the most profound way, as we know from the scripture, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that's gone before. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law. He's the ultimate prophet. So when Moses said back in Deuteronomy, the Lord your God will appoint a prophet from within you, listen to him. Here he is. Here he is. All this time later, here he is. 
And don't you love the fact that it says they didn't know what to say, so Peter said this. It's like, no, Peter, if you don't know what to say, don't say anything. It's just, don't we, it's just great, isn't it? It's Peter. He just blunders in. He says, teacher, it's good that we're here because now we can build you a shelter. And you're all going, what on earth is that about? Why, why are you building three little dens on the mountain? The glory of God is here, for goodness sake. And we don't know because we haven't, can't ask Peter yet, but what he was thinking. But what it makes us think of is two things. One of which is a, um, a festival in the Old Testament called the Festival of Shelters or booths or tabernacles, all the same word, where they, people would build shel- temporary shelters and it was a reminder of how God provided in the wilderness. It was a reminder of God's provision, but it's also a looking forward to what God will do when he sends the Messiah. His provision ultimately in the Messiah. That's what that festival's about. Maybe he's thinking about that. But the word shelter, as I say, is also the same word as tabernacle. And if you know the story when Moses goes up that mountain, he not only gets the commandments, he gets very, very detailed. Very detailed, if you read it. uh, Detailed description and instruction of how to build a tabernacle for God to live amongst his people. Yeah, how to build this incredibly ornate tabernacle, this shelter for the glory of God to live amongst his people. The precursor to the temple, where the same thing happens. But of course, we know, don't we, that on this mountain, Jesus is present. There's no need for a temple anymore. These guys are still going to the temple. Jesus is still going to the temple. He's a good Jew. Temple is still part of their life. But what's happening here is we're seeing, uh -uh, actually, there's no need for a temple anymore. The glory of God doesn't live in temples made by hands. It lives in this man, Jesus, this God-man on the mountain. We're seeing something. God is pulling back the curtain for these guys to see something. There's no need for a temple anymore. And we know that, right? We don't come here because the glory of God is here. He's, He's with us. God is with us. Yeah, we don't need... Do you remember the Holy of Holies at the 24 hours of prayer? There was a place where the glory of God lived, but now we don't need a temple. Yeah, yeah? so the, the glory of God is shown here in Jesus, and now he lives in us and with us. Come on. There's no need for a tabernacle or a temple. I've got this quote, and, and hopefully it's helpful, but we talk about Jesus being a prophet, ultimately, of all prophets... And Jesus fulfilling the law, all things in him satisfy God's law. You know that? And we see these poor men, these disciples, wrestling with what is going on in this man who they love and they know and they hang out with and they eat with and they chat with. And they get get this little glimpse of something so, so different. And one of the commentators, commentators said this, It is not sufficient to interpret Jesus as a great prophet, or even as the expected king in David's line, for he is one who is still greater. The categories of prophet and Messiah are not wrong. They are simply incomplete and fail to do full justice to his glory. And in all the stories of the Gospels about Jesus the man, and many of the stories we've looked at in this series, I think we we love how, how he taught people and how he showed compassion to people. We love the way that he cuts through the hypocrisy don't we we love the way that he loves people we would loved some of us would have loved one of those dinners where he was causing trouble by saying the wrong things and eating with the wrong people we love the imminence we love the fact that 
Jesus is earthy and he's real and he deals with people and we can relate to that. There's a theological term that talks about imminence and transcendence. Imminence just means God is present, he's here, he's not distant, he's amongst us, imminence. Transcendence means he is so other and above and glorious and beyond and sovereign and supreme. And he is both and, and that's our God. And in Jesus we see that, don't we, so clearly. 2,000 years ago in some backwater in the Middle East, there's a man displaying the imminence of God, that, that truth. That he's come to us, that he's among us, that he's with us. Yeah, Emmanuel, God with us. And here in the transfiguration, I think God is pulling back the curtain and saying, yeah, but look, what else is there? This is the transcendent, eternal son of God. This is not just your friend and teacher, Peter, James and John. He's transcendent. He's glorious. I've written down in my notes, he's not our mate. He's the eternal, awe-inspiring son of God. I'll I'll quantify that in a minute because some of you are already going, oh, where's my mate? (laughs) But listen, folks, this is why we're disciples of Jesus, right? We're talking about discipleship in this series. This is why we're disciples of Jesus. Because he is the revealed son of God. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. He's the exact representation of God in all his transcendence and glory. And yet, because of love... He's come in humanity and closeness and nearness. And the Bible does say, in fact, Jesus says in John's Gospel, John tells us that Jesus says, I don't call you servants or slaves, I call you friends. Yeah? We, we know that he's like our, our elder brother. And yet, the reason we worship him and the reason we're his disciples, is not because he's great in all these ways that we can see when we read about him on the earth. It's because he's divine you know that it's because he's transcendent he's God himself come to give himself and when we take communion shortly we're going to remember aren't we that the God man gave his life died yes so that we can know the awe-inspiring transcendent God I don't know about you but I have trouble getting my head around these things sometimes I'm so grateful that God is gracious that he can show you know these truths to us by his spirit we don't have to always just grapple intellectually or mentally, God shows us, doesn't he, in our hearts, the truth. It's so great. That's my prayer today, that God will really show us who Jesus is. He's not just Jesus. He's the Christ. He's Jesus Christ. He's not just a man. He is the God-man. He is both God and man fully. And today, he is still that. He is still in heaven, the God-man. He is still there representing us with, with marks in his hands from that cross. And when I, when I said, um, Jesus is not your mate, what, what I mean by that is, he, the Bible says he's our friend. He's closer than a brother. But I was thinking about this and I was reminded of Revelation chapter 1 and so one of the guys who goes up the mountain with Jesus and sees this extraordinary event um, he, one of them is John and much later in fact right near the end of his life as quite an old man he had received a vision from God which is the last recounted in the last book of our Bibles called the Revelation of John and this John we know from the Gospels was one of Jesus' best buddies 
They spent a lot of time together. You may know famously that at the Last Supper, um, it says John was kind of leaning back on Jesus and they're talking. And they've done a lot together. I, I like to ground this, you know. So I th- think about John and I think they have, he has seen Jesus with bedhead. You know, when he wakes up in the morning and he just looks a bit <coughs> bedraggled. He's seen him wash in the river. He's seen him eat. They've been together. They've discussed everything. They're, they're close. And then in the revelation of John, right at the beginning, John, the same John, meets or gets a vision of the risen, glorified Jesus Christ. Let me just read that to you. John says this, I turned to see whose voice was speaking to me, and when I did so, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. He was dressed in a robe extending down to his feet and he wore a wide golden belt around his chest. His head and hair were as white as wool, even as white as snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp double-edged sword extended out of his mouth. His face shone like the sun shining at full strength. And John says this, when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though I were dead. It's good to remember, this is is Jesus who, who John knew so well. They were friends, they were mates, very much so. And yet, when John gets this revelation of the pure, you know, all that imagery of, of what Jesus looks like, it's all about purity and power and authority and when John sees it he's, he's on his face and I just think man God give us a revelation today of how amazing Jesus is of how we can know him as friend and brother yeah, we can know him as the one who went to the cross sacrificed himself for our sin so that we could have peace with God and yet the glory, the revelation of the glory of this awe-inspiring sun. It's just mind-blowing. And I just pray for us that we can have, whatever you came here today with, whatever your vision of Jesus today, I pray it's just enlarged. Yeah, I pray God would just enlarge our vision. And the last thing I want to say before we get the band up is, but I, I did ask, I was praying about today, and I felt God really speak to me about, about something, and Chris spoke two weeks ago about Jesus throws this incredible challenge to his disciples. He says, well, did you know if you want to mean by disciple, you've got to take up your cross to follow me. And they don't know what that means. They haven't seen him go to the cross yet, by the way. But we know what it means. It means you take up a cross of wood, which is an instrument of execution. And being a disciple of Jesus means dying to yourself and dying to the world, doesn't it? And... and, um, um, Apostle Paul says in, in, in his letter to Galatians about may I never boasted anything but the cross of Christ through which the world has been crucified to me. So, so Jesus says, you're going to follow me, you're going to die to yourself and die to the world. It's incredibly challenging, isn't it? And we all came away from that like, oh Lord, help me. But the other thing that Jesus says about a piece of wood is in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, because I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and my load is not hard to carry. 
And a yoke is a wooden bar that joins together two people or two animals to pull something, to do a job. And Jesus is saying, if if you're yoked to me, if you've got that on your shoulders, it's not burdensome, it's not heavy. There's rest for your souls in that. And that's the paradox, isn't it? That's the paradox. We know when we take up our cross and die to self, Jesus lifts us up. Jesus gives all all we need. It's like like John the Baptist says, if I decrease, he increases. And it's a beautiful paradox of the Son of God. He's both friend and scary, terrifying, awesome, eternal Son of God. He both says, die to self, and then, this is not hard. I'll give you rest for your souls. If we can have the band up and the welcome team can bring in communion. When we're invited to take communion, we not only remember that Jesus' body was broken and blood was poured out on the cross. It's, it's as if he, he invites us to his table to take the bread and wine, or in this case juice, it's not wine, it's juice, grape juice, and to commune with him, to come to him. As you take communion today, come to him. Ask God for revelation of this beautiful son of God. As you meet him, as you give thanks for that sacrifice, as you commune with him. My prayer right now is that we receive such eye-opening, heart-expanding revelation that just causes us to worship him more and more. Are you up for that? Yes. Good, so we're going to sing In Christ Alone. And as we do so, the communion is going to come round to you and then we'll take it together in a couple of moments.